I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. Right? Wonderful words to a wonderful song. I am super thankful to live in the United States of America where we have freedom. I know it is not a perfect nation. I know we have many flaws, but by and large, I think it is the freest nation in the history of the world. There, We have more rights and more freedoms than any other time or place that I know of in the history of the world. And I could be wrong on that. Maybe somebody will leave a comment and say, oh, you're wrong. You're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. That could be true. I may be wrong on that, but I do believe that we are one of the freest nations in the history of all societies, and I think it's incredible. Uh, to, to live here in the United States of America, and I believe that I'm incredibly blessed. I'm thankful to be an American. I'm thankful for our flag. I'm thankful for our songs and our anthems, and I, I really, truly am grateful for all that it means to be an American. And I, I love what it means to be an American in the sense that we have so much freedom. I love the fact that we have freedom, but it, it begs the question, I think it's a question that's being asked in the political world, and I believe is beginning to be asked even more and more in the theological world, what is freedom, and is freedom always a good thing? Let me put it this way, if we have no freedom, or if we have limited freedom, then we don't have the ability to choose for ourselves. If we have freedom, then why do we need laws? You, you see, freedom, I believe, has to be accompanied by virtue. And I don't think you can legislate virtue. That's the challenge of politics, which is why I don't think the answer for America being able to be and stay free is actually going to be found in Washington, D.C. or in the political parties. I believe it's going to be found in the church, and that's what I want to talk about today. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt McMorris, and I believe that the Bible is what we need to help us live, think, and love like Jesus. As a pastor, I find that people are way too busy sometimes and might actually need some help understanding what the Bible teaches about a multitude of different topics. So join me as I interview pastors, theologians, and students of Scripture as we seek to know what the Bible says, what it means, and why it matters. If you want to know Jesus and His Word better, but realize that once on Sunday just isn't cutting it, then subscribe to the show, because this is Grace Beyond Sunday. So what does it mean to be free? I mean, this is America, right? We are proud to be Americans, and we believe in freedom, and don't tread on me, and we don't want anybody else telling us what to do. We believe in freedom. And and in fact, there's, there's kind of two political parties that look at freedom in two different ways, and I don't want to look at it from either one of those perspectives. What I want to do is I want to look at it from a biblical perspective. On this, on this show, we really want to focus on a biblical worldview. And so while we understand some of the basic tenets of freedom, what is freedom? freedom really, and what? how should we as Christians view freedom? And, and here's an even broader question that I want us to look at today. Can, can freedom exist apart from virtue? Can freedom exist apart from virtue? Here's what the dictionary says about freedom. It says, freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Let me read it one more time. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. And at some level, that sounds amazing. There's nothing hindering us. There's nothing restraining us from living however we want. And and on the one hand, I respect that. I think that's great because I don't want anybody to stop me from living the way I think we should live. But on the other hand, there's so many there, there's there's so many 
people, billions of people in this world that all kind of have different views and different ideological positions and different philosophical standpoints. So how can we all live in freedom if that means that we live completely unhindered and completely without restraint? We're going to talk about some of the philosophers uh, and their ideas on this here in just a minute, but I think it's an interesting question. So what that leads me to is, with freedom, can freedom exist apart from virtue? Can freedom exist apart from virtue? Here's what the definition of virtue is from the dictionary. Virtue is behavior showing high moral standards. Behavior showing high moral standards. Our first president, George Washington, claimed, quote, human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. The general government can never be in danger of degenerating into a monarchy, an oligarchy, an aristocracy, or any despotic or oppressive form, so long as there is any virtue in the body of the people, end quote. I think that's a powerful quote, that human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. But I think the greater question for us that we want to focus on is, what does the Bible say about living in freedom? First Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says it this way, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free. And so I want to look at a couple of those those thoughts in this in this verse today, and it starts off with, live as people who are free. What does Peter mean when he's speaking of this idea of freedom. Now, now he's talking to people that have been oppressed, they've gone through difficult times, and they've scattered. These are Christians that have scattered around, and he's writing this letter to, to spread amongst them, and he's talking to these people about holiness and righteous living. If you look uh, earlier in the book of First Peter, what he's talking about is holiness and living righteously. So he's not referring to this in some kind of a legalistic way that if you do things, God will love you. He's talking about it in a grace-based way. In other words, because of grace, because of Christ, we should live in a way, we should respond in a way that that showcases and shows forth holiness and righteousness. So mankind has, has throughout the, the generations, we've thought about this idea of freedom and whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, and many nations have, have considered that some freedom is good, but not unlimited freedom. But in America, we've really kind of fought, and many have died for this idea of freedom. You have the freedom to live as you like. You have the freedom to make decisions. God doesn't force anyone to accept him. God doesn't force anyone to obey him. God doesn't force anyone to live the way his word teaches. So even when it comes to Christianity, you're not being forced. You're not being coerced into it, potentially persuaded. Like like someone, if, if I believe that it's the right way to live, I want to persuade people to join me in that journey. But no one's forcing anyone to live according to the laws of, of Scripture and according to what Scripture teaches. Peter's teaching them that they are, indeed, through the gospel, made free. So because of that, because they're free, does that mean that because of Jesus, because God is love, because God is caring, does that mean we can live however we want to? Well, Romans chapter 6 explains this, and I'm going to read verse number 6, where Paul is telling the church at Rome, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. In other words, what he's saying in those couple of verses is this. Before we knew Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we were all slaves to our sin. We only ever sinned. Now, that doesn't mean everything we did was considered a bad thing or was considered morally corrupt. What it means is that even the good things that we appear to have done were done for selfish reasons or ego reasons. 
let me give it to you as this example. If somebody is a poor person and they're sitting on the side of the street and I walk by and I put a $100 bill in their cup that they're holding up for, uh, for some kind of help and support, I can do that. And somebody might say, that's a good thing. And it is a good thing. But why did I do that? Well, I, I did it to help them. That's great. Why did you want to help them? Well, because it makes me feel good, right? So even even these things, now there's nothing bad. Feeling good's a great thing. But if that's my reason, if that's the reason I'm doing those things, even those things are selfish. I'm a slave to my own desires. Verse number 14 goes on, sin, because we know Christ, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You live under the freedom of God's grace. For those of us that know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we're free to live in God's grace. The beauty of the gospel is this. Prior to life in Christ, we knew only bondage. We lived bound by our sin because it was our only nature. But when we place our faith in Christ, we're set free from that singular nature. We're free to choose whether or not we will live in a way that pleases Christ or whether we're going to live in a way that pleases ourselves. There are those who claim Christianity is oppressive with its rules and moral laws, but what they don't see is that without Christianity, you're truly a slave to one master with no hope of potentially serving another. And that one master leads you ultimately to destruction. James chapter 1 teaches this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Christianity is what actually frees us from our own choices. It frees us from being bound by our own desires that lead to destruction. No one is truly free until they know Christ, even if they don't even realize it. So when, when Peter is telling them to live as people that are free, he's saying recognize your position in Christ. Recognize the power of the gospel in your life that has made you free from your sin. But what does this have to do with religion? Well, religion is often like a pendulum that swings too far to one side or the other. You see, on some, in some churches, in some religions, you, you can look at it this way. God loves you and accepts you just the way you are. And you don't have to change. There's no restrictions, no rules, no nothing, just love. And God is love, and so you can be whoever you believe your authentic self is, and God will just love you and accept you the way you are. On the other side of that, there's another kind of religion that says this, God will love you if you live a certain way, follow a set of rules, and he will accept you into his love. So on the one hand, it's you can kind of live however you want and God will love you. On the other side of religion is this idea of if you follow these rules, God will love you. And the reality is both of those ideologies are problematic and both of them are wrong. And Peter kind of takes both of those to task and he addresses them both. You see, so he started off where he said uh, to live as people that are free, but then he goes in and says this, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So the first ideological view of religion, which basically says that love is the premier virtue, claims that we can basically all live how we want to, and that no one should judge us, because God, quote, made us this way. This is how I was born. But Peter is teaching these Christians that our freedom in Christ is not to be used as a cover-up for us to live lives that are evil. I was reading an essay this week from the Cato Institute where the author, uh, a gentleman, I don't know him, a gentleman by the name of Doug Bandow, uh, made several interesting claims. And let me, let me read these to you. First of all, it says this, quote, "...virtue cannot exist without the freedom to make moral choices." 
coerced acts of conformity with some moral norm, however good, do not represent virtue. Rather, compliance with that moral norm must be voluntary. In other words, morality or doing good is something that can't be coerced. It can't be forced by a government. It's something we must have the freedom to choose. So I believe even Peter's saying this. He's saying, yes, you have the ability to be free, but don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. But you do have the choice. He goes on later in the essay and says this, government has proved that it is not a good teacher of virtue. The state tends to be effective at simple tasks, like jailing people. It is far less successful in shaping individual consciences. New laws would not make America a more virtuous nation, even if there were fewer overt acts of immorality. There would be no change in people's hearts, and thus in society's moral core. Now, here's what I find interesting about this. He's not saying that we shouldn't have more laws and we shouldn't do things to protect more people. For example, let's take the issue of abortion. We can we can mandate that abortions are illegal, which is not what the Supreme Court decision uh, uh, was in Dobbs. It simply gave those decisions back to the states. But let's say that you live in a state that that kind of puts away the ability to have an abortion for just any reason. In those particular states, somebody might look at that and say, we've done a good thing. We've mandated that abortion not be allowed. And and I agree with that. I don't think people should have abortions, and I think having laws about that are a good thing. But the reality is the heart of the problem is still in existence. So just because somebody isn't legally allowed to have an abortion doesn't mean that we've become a more virtuous society. It just means that they're not legally allowed to do the thing that they still believe and are convinced they should be allowed to do. Morality and virtue is something that has to come from some outside source, some transcendent source like God. Another quote from the essay is this, It is not the government's job to enforce virtue. I contest that the government cannot enforce true virtue, obedience perhaps, but not a virtuous society. Making government a moral enforcer encourages abuse by whatever interest groups gain power. If one thing is certain, it is that man is sinful, that sin is magnified by coercive power. Those who possess power can, of course, do good, but history suggests that they are far more likely to do harm. So either side of the equation, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, when power is gained, often that power is corrupt, and history just shows us this. Virtuous living or what Christians like to call holiness, is a requirement, I believe, for freedom. Because without personal restraint and without personal holiness, freedom historically always leads to debauchery. Unrestrained freedom is dangerous. Now, that doesn't mean that I think a governmental system should come in and take over and that we should have some kind of a monarchy or something of that nature. What I believe is that there has to be virtue along with our freedom. So I'm all for freedom. Don't get me wrong here. I'm all for freedom, but I think there has to be virtue with that freedom. So many try to regulate freedom through the government. The government, though, is not the institution that God created to train virtue. For that, God gave us the family and he gave us the church, which is more of what we're going to discuss in a little bit. So some people will use Jesus as an excuse, as a reason to justify things like abortion or sexual experimentation or things of that nature, but those things really are anti-true freedom. Freedom that brings true peace and joy only exists in the boundaries of holiness. That's why many view the church, though, as oppressive and as an institution that should be regulated by the state 
and and relegated to the realm of the extreme. They believe the laws of Scripture are actually restricting their own personal freedom, which restricts their ability to create and develop some kind of utopian society. So we see that we're supposed to live as people that are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But the other thing we see is that we are supposed to live as servants of God. The second view of religion is that if we do certain things, God will love us more. In other words, if, if there are certain things that we do, God will then show us his favor. We can earn favor with God. But the reality is, as Pastor J.D. Greer says, he says, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you've ever done that would make God love you less. The reality here is that Peter's teaching them that since you love God, it, you can then choose to be God's servant. And you'll actually find freedom when you do choose to be God's servant, because now you have a choice. For the first time before, you were just a servant of the devil, you were a slave to the devil, now you can be a servant to God, but you're going to serve one or the other. Making the choice to yield ourselves to God, though, is what brings us true freedom, because living for God brings blessing and peace and joy and purpose and stability and reward, whereas when we live for ourselves, we just face judgment and condemnation. Freedom is found in what's true. Freedom is found in understanding biblical truth. So what I want us to understand is what what do we do to find that, that virtue, to find that truth, so that we can live free, but we can live free with virtue. Throughout history, um, man has pondered and debated and discussed uh, some of the great meanings of life. Uh, many great thinkers have, have kind of asked questions about why we exist and what our purpose is and, and, and what it means to be free or to be authentic. Freedom from any restraints, or any restraints. Um, and, and they claim that if we, could, if we could free ourselves from anything, we could find a utopian society. If we could free ourselves from capitalism, if we could free ourselves from the oppressor, if we could, if we could free ourselves sexually, all of these things would allow us to live this utopian self. Uh, no sexual repression, no moral withholdings. All would be good if we could please our psychological self, if we could make our psychological selves happy. Uh, Charles Taylor calls this the expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, meaning that man is at his best when man is completely free. Many philosophers claim that Christianity is oppressive because it has a moral law that Christians claim should be upheld. And, and so it makes this concept of real freedom or true authentic freedom uh, impossible. Many of the philosophers of the past would claim Christianity to be indefensible, but then there are some that have had a great impact on modern philosophical thinking, like Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who found religion to be morally repugnant, like just he thought it was an awful thing. Nietzsche held to two basic realities that have influenced thinking in, in modern culture. One was that he was suspicious of any claims to an absolute moral truth, and he secondly uh, rejected all forms of religion. Why? Because religion was oppressive. You couldn't be your authentic self if you were under the oppression of some form of religion. Oppression limits personal freedom, right? Because if you love me, the Bible says, keep my commandments. And so if I'm keeping God's commandments, and I can't just do what feels good. Nietzsche believed that the, the purpose to life was personal happiness, or what... Um, I'm sorry, Shelley, Percy Shelley, who was a, um, a romantic poet, believes that the, the purpose of life was personal happiness, and and he was against organized religion or the church, um, and thought it was some of the major problems for the pursuit of personal freedom and personal happiness. He wrote in his book, Political Works, he said this, 
In fact, religion, quote, uh, quoting him, in fact, religion and morality, as they now stand, compose a practical code of misery and servitude. The genius of human happiness must tear every leaf from the accursed book of God ere man can read the inscription on his heart. How would morality, dressed up in stiff stays and fineries, start from her own disgusting image should she look in the mirror of nature? And then Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self, wrote this describing uh, what Percy Shelley was teaching, and he says this, quote, "...organized Christianity with its imposition on humanity of the law code contained in the Bible is that which has alienated human beings from each other and destroyed true liberty. Christianity must therefore be destroyed if human beings are to be truly free and truly happy." That wasn't what Truman thought, that's what he says Percy Shelley was teaching. And and this is what a lot of the quote-unquote philosophical thinkers that have influenced today's culture have to say, is that Christianity is oppressive. It's destroying man's ability to be truly free. So how does somebody learn to be free? How does somebody learn to truly live in freedom? Well, John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 say this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Word of God is truth. Now, we can look at the Bible, and we can see where, where the Bible teaches that uh, Jesus says that he is, he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Jesus is the truth. We can read in the book of, of, of John where, where the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this reference to the Word or truth and Jesus, it's all Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And then the church supports truth. That's what's so interesting and important about church. As a pastor, I don't want people to come to church just because I'm trying to grow a gathering or a following. I want people to be a part of a church because I think the hope for America, the hope for freedom is found in the church. Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, get this, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth is the church of the living, of God, of the living God. What is a pillar? The defin de definition in the dictionary is this, a person or thing regarded as reliably providing essential support for something. And then a foundation is an underlying basis or principle. So the church is the underlying base, and the pillar is that which provides essential support for something. So the truth is Jesus, and the church lifts up and magnifies Jesus. So in a healthy church, you'll be taught truth. In a healthy church, you'll be part of a community pursuing truth. In a healthy church, you'll have prayer warriors, burden bearers, accountability partners, and shepherds helping you understand and live out biblical truth. Get this, biblical truth sets you free. So here's my simple conclusion of how I believe America can be uh, sustained as a free nation Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in the early 19th century looking for what made America great. And here's what he concluded, and I quote, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her, commo in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. 
in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there, in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. So whether you think the solution for America is to make America great again or to build back better, the reality is simply this. The Church of Jesus must be strong, it must be healthy, and Christians must use their freedom for the glory of God. Is the Church perfect? Nope. Is our nation perfect? No. But the Church is the pillar and ground of the truth, so find a healthy, Bible-believing Church, be a part of it, reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, bring them into a healthy, Bible-believing Church, and let's watch God turn our nation back to Him, not through our politics, but through our churches. (laughs) 